This is the No Switch Fitness Podcast. We want to help guide your journey into developing your best physique. With your host, Luke Miller. All right, guys, welcome back to the No Switch Fitness Podcast. Today, we have a recurring guest because y'all seem to love him so much. Um, and Callum Raystrick. Um, if y'all don't know who Callum is, Callum is a co-founder of the Muscle Mentors, and he is a fantastic coach in the industry. So please give him a warm welcome, and I'm really excited for today's conversation. Thanks for uh, thanks for having me on again, mate. Of course. So today we're going to be going over specialized program, and this was kind of instigated from uh, a comment I made on on one of Callum's posts because we were both talking about like specialized programming for our arms at the moment um, and kind of kind of phase into that. But really, Calum, I kind of want to hear what what all you have going on right now as far as how you're handling yours. And then we'll phase into doing it for client setups and, and certain classes and things like that. Sure. So um, something that I've taken a, a bias from a programming perspective over for uh, probably since last August, um, so it's, it's a good amount of time within the current setup. And uh, I was basically getting to a point where progression was was consistent across the board in terms of like everything was was responding. But as everything else grew, the, the disparity between everything relative to my arms would become more excessive as everything else grew. So my back was growing, my delts were growing, my chest was growing, and then my arms wouldn't, wouldn't quite respond in a in the same kind of capacity as everything else. And I kind of reviewed everything, looked at programming, looked at exercise selection. And I think the biggest, uh, the biggest, I'm quite a tall guy as well. I've got, I've got long limbs. Um, and for me to, to carry those front poses, for me to carry a most muscular, for me to carry a front double bicep, you know, I, I need to have a decent amount of tissue on my arms because it just looks odd otherwise, because my arms are so long. Um, I just basically came to a came to a point where I just started placing started placing more of a focus on them, and I've always been a mindset before where it will be you know three or four sets tagged on at the end of a pull session, and three or four sets tagged on at the end of a push session, and it would it would tick the box, but it would never it would never quite be enough to see a significant shift in in, in development. Um, and the last kind of four or five months have uh, have been just a consistent rotation of hitting one movement at the end of the push and the pull session and then giving them their own day within that rotation as well. Um, so there's, there's, there's a level of frequency there, but obviously the the specific day where I will go in predominantly train arms is obviously escalating the level of volume I was doing on them significantly higher than it was before. And I think you'll agree that the uh, there's definitely merit to, to train them when they're actually, when you're actually fresh in a session as well. Like, the level of connection, the level of um, stimulation from a contractile perspective I've managed to get from actually hitting them first in a session is is night and day different in terms of what it was previously. Um, just because there's no fatigue, I haven't, you know, I haven't hit pinch in the pull session, then I'm training out, I'm training arms an hour later than I started training. You know, it's a, it's a different level of pump, it's a different level of blood flow. And I think, you know, alongside the increases in intensity and uh, accuracy as a result of that, the, the the development has come as a as a product of those things, and, and I would think that this is something that 
a lot of the people that probably follow us and the culture that we provide are a little bit easy to shy away from like a, a full arm day. Right. Um, mm. But I, I, I'm kind of in a similar boat, right? Like my, my arms are a little bit longer limbs. And so like in the most muscular, a, a front relaxed, it's a tough shot for me just from a development standpoint. Um, and I've actually been using an arm day too in the past, probably since July. Um, and mm. I've actually included a, a third, a third delt rotation in there as well for my frequency, tagging on some delts into that arm day. Um, yeah. What do you think has been like the hardest thing to manage shifting to that is it been any anything you've had to switch as far as like your other sets of programming as far as like your other sessions and then we're going to kind of get into specialized the, uh, the only thing i noticed at the start was when i first started it i started to notice my legs would my my quads particularly would fade a little bit just because the frequency in terms of actual quad stimulation was dropping by a day so whereas I was training them maybe every five days previously, it would go to every six, but I basically just shifted around um, exercise selection in that lower body session to make it a predominantly quad-based session. And then I'll hit pinch on that pull day, which will hit a little bit of posterior chain. Um, but the interesting thing for me is uh, also looking at the, the hip pinch and the, and the squat variation that I've had in the rotation, because there's been that additional day of recovery between the lower and the pull, the consistency and progression with those sessions has also escalated quite significantly as well. Whereas previously I would do, you know, I was running for a long, long time, push, pull, rest, lower, rest, repeat. And there's only one day of recovery between those two days. And if I'm, you know, if I'm doing a Dorian dead on one of those days and then I'm going in and doing a heavy hack squat or whatever it might be, there was a lot of fatigue being carried into that session. And now that additional day's recovery has, um, has served the purpose in regards to allowing more consistent progression through those, through that training block with those movements in place. We've kind of seen the same thing over here because we run a, we run an arm day every other rotation. So it goes like PPL off, push pull arms, legs off. Yeah. And we do ours before our hip hinge. And I did that purposely because it separates that pull day from the hip hinge day. And it's been like a massive progression on the, on the hip hinge for me, which is a movement I'm a little bit stronger in, but it has served to even further progress that to the point that I've, I've had to find ways to make it harder. Like I, I just switched to even harder band setup to try to make it a little bit harder. Plus get a little bit more trap involvement for specific my development as well. Um, but I do think that one of the things that is easy to get caught up into is the, the frequency bubble. Um, I do think that that's a very good tool to use, but I've seen a lot of people take the frequency and the volume too far. So they'll keep the regular volume for push and pull within their sessions and then just add in the arm day. And I don't think that's an appropriate way to apply it. And for me, like I've been doing, I've been doing biceps, triceps three times a week, probably since August, fluctuating the volume as recovery capacity needs, um, but still keeping that frequency high by only, by pulling down the volume within my push and pull. And then allocating a total focus day of arms and being able to train more total volume there, fresh. And then another thing that I've used is using it at the start of sessions that I don't think it's going to take away from. So like doing one set of, or one exercise of biceps at the start of a leg day or doing one exercise of triceps at the start of like a hamstring day, right? Where it's not going to take away from my output on a, on a leg day, but it's still going to allow me to train it fresh. And that quality of training is, I think, the biggest piece that people 
shy away from when it comes to arm training for sure um as we phase into like specializing body parts let's go over the basic tenets of how we have to adjust the rest of the program in order to be able to allow someone to be able to do that especially when it's starting to get into body part specialization for like some of our bigger more fatiguing musculature like quads hamstrings back it's going to take more per set that we add in terms of like recovery uh, implications yeah recovery implications and how the rest of the program may have to change according to volume additions there yeah i think um arms arms and to an extent delts like particularly rear and medial delts is um when we look at like the tolerance of being able to add more and get away with it i think arms and delts are something that we can definitely have have a, a certain amount of leeway in terms of um you know like you said you're getting away with training them three times a week on average you know if we were applying effort into those lower body sessions and those more neurally demanding movements and just bigger tissues that are going to require more energy and more recovery demands as well the the specialization phases for say quads or hamstrings if we're going to have a bigger focus on those muscle groups we're going to have to take that workload away from somewhere else so there's no way we can you know apply what we were doing previously and then just add eight sets more quads onto the week we need to appreciate the fact that if we're going to push more volume onto our quads and workload onto our quads or train the quads twice a week then your hamstring volume or your your back volume or whatever it might be is going to have to drop down to what would be a minimum effective dose um and i think uh yeah it, it the the stimulus to fatigue ratio is just going to shift significantly with those with those muscle groups because it's um a lot of the arm training that I've introduced, not a lot, but the majority of the arm training I've introduced on that specific arm day, you could you could classify that as more metabolic work as well. So that more metabolic work, the recovery implications are, are much more minimal compared to me going and doing a hack squat or a or a you know a safety bar squat, whatever that might be. That's going to take me days to recover from. Um, so potentially, if we're looking at specialization part, uh, phases for for quads, we might have a session across the week where we load a little bit more specifically and then we might have a session across the week where we are a little bit more metabolic in the stimulus that we're doing um we can package it in many ways but i think when we're going into the realms of specializing back quads hamstrings any of those more neurally demanding um sessions we're just going to play we're going to have to play that super super carefully in terms of how much we uh we bite off because it, it, there's there's going to be a fine line between adding enough in to cause that extra adaptation and adding too much in which somebody will just end up overreaching as a result of that. And I think a, a thing in our culture too that we have to be careful of is people just playing this dumb lift heavy to lift heavy because I need to lift heavy in order to progress that body part. And now we start skewing stimulus to fatigue ratios. I see this all the time. Like uh, I had a guy that came to me, he, this dude can, easily squat like 535 for reps right like but legs are still his like weakest body part and it's like you are driving so much fatigue putting 535 on your back and squatting it for 12 reps when the accuracy of the reps and where you're directing tension and everything along those lines is just pushed off everywhere else right and i think we get this we get this old adage of but ronnie did it but jay did it but yada yada did it and it's like as an excuse to not take a fine tooth comb to our training application and our training execution it's like look man like when it's a weak body part like you have to look at this thing like it's a fucking science experiment everything needs to be on point you need to get in there and need to progress the logbook but if our 
rep accuracy isn't there, then we're not going to be able to train at the volumes that's going to allow us to specialize that body part in order to push the progress faster than our relatives or our other body parts. And this is what I've spent like the last, since my last show in 2019 is getting my upper body back to or equivalent to what my lower body looks like. Mm. And like a lot of it's just come from execution setups, setups and execution and, and being able to fix that first so that the volume I was training at was a higher total stimulus. Um, what, what, how are you going through, like making sure that the client fully understands this and fully resets everything when it comes to trying to start to specialize someone in programming? Because for most people, we're probably in that realm of, we just need more total mass, right? So it's a pretty balanced program. And as I typically see this as something, as we phase into specializing that needs even more of a fine tooth comb. Mm -hmm. And like that, that comes to the point of, if we do have a, if this isn't structural, if we do have a, uh, a muscle group, which is, uh, it's not proportional to the rest of the physique in terms of development, then the first thing we do need to look at is it, instead of looking at adding more, and that could be in terms of volume or load, we've got to look at how we're actually applying the, the exercise selection and the, and the work sets that we're actually doing for that tissue in the first place. And, you know, you want to see that as many times as me in regards to clients that do come in and say, you know, I've always really struggled with growing my quads. I've already really struggled with growing my delts. And you'll look at their previous programming and you'll look at how they're applying themselves within those sets. And it's obvious, like they're, they're just not effectively executing those movements or um, they're not picking appropriate exercise selection. So that's got to be the foundation of what we're doing here. And that will iron out a lot of the initial the, the, a lot, a lot of the initial issues that you're going to have in terms of development, but you're going to get to a point where you're working with those uh, more kind of experienced, um, more matured, more developed athletes where once they've gone through that fine coding, fine coding process of nailing the, the execution side of things and nailing the accuracy and nailing alignment and nailing exercise selection, we then need to look at, right, how are we going to package this in the program to be able to bias these muscle groups while still allowing everything else to tick over? Um, and you're completely right, you know, for, for probably, for the majority of people coaching kind of base level clients that aren't competitors, that aren't at that elite level, they don't need to program specifically for their arms or the delts or whatever for a long, 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 long period of time. Because you can get, get by with just using baseline volume for everything and this increasing progression and, and executing well for a long period of time but there will come a point where those bottlenecks are reached and then you've just got to be critical as a coach yeah and I've, it's funny because you know you sometimes get those young guys come to you and they're like i don't feel like my arms are relative to the rest of my physique or i don't feel like yeah. whatever is relative to the rest of my physique i'm like no you're just you're just not big enough yet and i don't mean to be rude but it's just like you just need overall development. Like your arms are probably relative to the rest of your physique. And that's just, you know, kind of where we're at. Right. Um, but an interesting topic within this whole programming sector is choosing portions of the range of motion to load prior to others. Right. So, you know, some people kind of bias loading a stretch in range motion because we're providing more total mechanical tension because we're loading the stretch in range first in a LinkedIn muscle group. You know, some people like to follow the adage of, you know, shorten first into lengthen or shorten into mid-range into lengthen. Um, so where, where are you kind of standing there as far as like session structure and session setup and like how are you utilizing that? Typically with the arm work, I will, um, the first two exercises of that session 
will load predominantly mid and short and will be something for the most part unilateral because I've just found that for me personally with what's going on at my shoulder especially on this left side um, and just from an execution standpoint that unilateral focus allows much better alignment for me as an individual um, and I've just basically you know that that arm session might start with uh, a pre-scale variant single arm and like a single arm cuffed cross-body tricep extension or something like that um, and I know that once those two are done, I can tax that range, that contractor range much better when I'm, when I'm fresh, but it also allows me to move on to anything else beyond those two first exercises where I'm already neurologically primed. There's all, there's already some blood in the tissue. I'm warm, the shoulder and the elbow are ready to rock. Um, and I'm not going in, you know, with a, with a heavy EZ bar curl and getting the first set done and being like, actually, my, my, my elbow's starting to niggle now, or I've just done my first set and I didn't even feel a thing on my bicep, you know? Um, that accuracy side of things has been a big focus for me. And, you know, I've, I've stripped back the arm training and literally said in my head, if I can't feel that tissue contract hard on every single rep, I'm not going to do it. And that's that's what I've done for the last four or five months because uh, I think that's been a big focus on on what's happened from a development perspective because I haven't this is probably the the least amount of um the the least amount of load I've used on my arms with the most accuracy I've trained them. And there are movements like I've got like a JM pressing at the moment where I've progressed it to a decent level, but it's um like I've I've trained arms heavier than this in the past in in inverted commas, but uh it's not the same stimulus as as it is now. Does your, does your opinion there switch when we start to go into other body parts? Because I'm in the same boat. Like my first my first two patterns is that cross body push down you mentioned. Um, and it's a preacher curl with the, the prime cam bias towards the shortened end. Yeah. Um, as we kind of phase into like legs and some of these bigger body parts, do you, do you tend to bias it more towards the stretch end range? Because this is something that like fascinates me as far as like program structure because because of my patella recently, I, I injured it back in October. I've been forced to train the shortened end range before I go into squatting. Yeah. And developmentally, like I've been training that way for like three months and maybe the first two weeks wasn't, first three weeks wasn't full board training because of the injury, but the rest has pretty much been. Mm. When it comes to leg training, I'm not sure that I'm a total fan of, of going shortened end range into into LinkedIn because I think it's just such a big drop in performance yeah. that it's not overly beneficial for the total development of the body part. So I'm just curious to kind of see where you're at in your head as far as like some of these bigger muscle groups. Typically, we'll, uh, I'll, I'll do a, in that lower body session at the moment, I'll do an adductor first and then I'll get a feel to put some blood in the leg extension, but I'll squat before I work on the leg extension. So there'll be a heavier, there'll be a heavier, kind of mechanical loading movement, whether that's uh, at the moment we've got a, a pivot leg press and a, and a safety bar squat, a wedge safety bar squat. Um, and the level of, like, if I take one or two sets to failure, like to true failure on the leg extension, I'll go to that safety bar squat and I'll be all over the place in terms of my ability to execute, my ability to contract. There's too much blood in my quads. Um, whereas if I, I can do the squat fresh and then I can go to the leg extension and just bury myself and it's absolutely fine um I, I definitely resonate with that for sure yeah and see that's kind of where i'm at right now like obviously like i'm, I'm having a quad extension before i hack and i'm like down and load on the hack obviously but at the same time it's like that bottom position is just 
brutal because my quads are so pumped. It's hard to like create force out of that bottom bottom. And it's not a, it's not a pattern that I've ever had issue like creating force out of. And it's, it's just an odd, an odd position to be in, but it's just kind of my hands been forced a little bit. Yeah. Um, when we, when we kind of started getting into classes, right. And I, I wouldn't mind taking like a fine tooth comb through some of the bigger classes, like women's physique, women's figure, men's bodybuilding and classic. Um, we start kind of seeing like necessity of volume needing to be predisposed towards other body parts a little bit more than, than some of the other ones in comparisons to some of the bigger classes and specifically more like talking women's figure here. Um, so when you kind of like come straight out of the gate with someone, what is like a program structure for women's figure look like? And then we'll kind of look, go into like other, other classes. Mm, it depends on, uh, like what, what level they're at and whether they are, you know, Erin is a prime example who turned pro in 2019 and we've just had a one year off season with her. And she was someone that even in the amateur ranks, like her quads were freaky, freaky, freaky um, quads. That everything else within that physique didn't quite flow with, with what was happening in the lower body, even like hamstrings and glutes. So we've had an entire year now where she's almost trained quads once every 14 days. And everything else was brought up as a as a consequence of that. And her legs, her quads are still grown, but she was training them every every two weeks, um, and that allowed for a little bit more time to spend on spend on what was happening in terms of posterior chain development, getting her back, um, getting her back matching that front shot, um, and also putting more on her delts. And I think for her, you know, the the programming is probably quite unique in nature because she was so. She was so gifted from a quad development perspective, but it's been really interesting for me pulling the frequency down that much. Like for most people, I'll probably still touch them like once a week or once a rotation, but we literally did nothing for every other week was no quad training whatsoever. Um, but that's what she needed to do to, to, to allow for the recovery that she required to, to bring everything else up. That's crazy. Cause like that's, that's a, a, good a frequency that's like unheard of. Yeah, yeah. Have you heard of um? Have you heard of Josh Josh Bailey before? Mm -hmm. So yeah. Josh, I used to work with Josh when we were we used to coach in the same gym, and um, I remember at points across the year in prep, he would train his quads once every three weeks. That's crazy. And his quads are massive. <laughs> That's crazy. Once every three weeks. <laughs> I don't know psychologically if I would even want to do that. Like I get so psychologically hyped for leg day that it's like yeah. something I look forward to, but damn, like, yeah. but that, that's interesting because it's, it seems to be a, and, and obviously everybody's inter-individual, right. But a common theme across a lot of figure girls nowadays is they're coming up from some of the lower classes and lower body development is a little bit ahead of upper body development a lot, a lot of times. So it's a good, it's a good like uh, grain of salt to kind of, um, take. And then like, especially for me, when it comes to like upper body programming, it, it looks so different for, for figure for me than like some of the other classes, as far as like bodybuilding and just from like the incline pressing that we're doing, the amount of lateral delt volume that's there, the amount of lat specific volume that's there. Um, for a lot of my girls, it's, it's, it's very common to see like lateral delt volume be at three times a week, straight out the gate or yeah. frequency to be three times a week, straight out the gate, just because that front shot's such a statement shot for figure, in my opinion, that it's like if you don't if you don't make it known you're there, then you're just gonna kind of get washed under the rug. Um, 
but when it comes to like as we transition into like physique and, and classic physique and bodybuilding how do we see that program start to shift as far as like needs analysis for these classes because i think one thing that's missed a lot with within this culture is 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 taking that time to do a needs analysis for yourself before you go into the class that you're wanting to compete in and i think that misses the whole point of the process of preparing yourself to go into the next class up or preparing yourself to go into the class that you're in and i think that like understanding a needs analysis is, is something that people need to kind of gather a little bit better yeah 100 i think the uh especially at that more elite level classic is something that is gonna is gonna be a huge reliance on on structure as well um and also from a coaching perspective in terms of with with these classic athletes it's being much more it's been much more calculated in putting muscle on but also maintaining their strengths when it comes to actually the look in general and how that look flows um the aggression in which we're pushing body weight up and also are we actually pushing body weight up because we might be reaching uh, the upper limit of uh, an actual weight class um you know we we don't want to spend long long periods of time with it with a classic physique athlete you know pounding food blowing their gi out and 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 potentially hindering that look that they can bring stage if they're spending long times there in that inflamed state and i think a bodybuilder the same the same is uh the same is going to be applicable but also from a bodybuilding perspective especially within those open classes the the level of magnitude those athletes have to put more muscle on and the requirement for them to go to amateur to pro at points do require that more aggressive approach where we do need to push up quite considerably whereas i think with a with a classic physique competitor unless they're coming from you know a, a, an average sized men's physique guy and they want to turn classic generally speaking what i see it as is it's a slightly more smoother process as opposed to a bodybuilder going from a you know from a classic to an open men's bodybuilder it's going to be a slightly more aggressive jump up and i would agree with that classic class and it 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 kind of befuddles me some of these weight classes in the classic class seem to be a little bit more skewed towards the taller classes in my opinion yeah um i have like a guy that's like five foot five who does classic he, he cards in between that five foot five five foot six and in my opinion he needs like 10 pounds to really compete at like a national level mm. and he could have he could be probably a little leaner than his last showing but the dude struggles to make his weight class every fucking time and it's like you know you're five foot five five foot six that's a 170 weight class right but you go up to like 510 and you get all the way up to like 210 205 and it's like okay wait a minute like how is a class a classic z competitor supposed to stay next to a class c classic z competitor and it's yeah. like you've got a, a 50, 60 pound weight difference here, right? And so it, it's just a curious class because it is so structurally dependent, right? And that might also transfer into like how you set up not only your programming, but your nutrition, like you said, it's gonna be a little bit more of a smoother approach, less aggressive. We're probably gonna be staying within striking distance a little bit longer. Um, but when it comes to like women's women's physique, how do you approach that class? Because that class just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger every year, it seems like. Yeah. I think uh, the women's physique side, you're essentially going to program as if they were a bodybuilder. <laughs> you're basically training a male bodybuilder for a woman. Because um, yeah. the muscularity within that class is now far exceeding what potentially was three, five years ago and, and what what figure is now. So you're essentially looking at just, just looking at putting tissue on everywhere. Yeah. Yeah, and I would agree there 100%.
Um, so when it comes to like programming for these classes, what is the biggest mistake you see people do? I think uh, I, we, I was speaking about this on another podcast the other day where, uh, and we, we briefly touched on it today where there is a, there is a, a level of haste in terms of a rush to add more or a rush to change exercise selection or a rush to, you know, um, add in, you know, I want to bring up my, I want to bring up my arms. So I'm going to add in a ton of rest pause sets. I'm going to add in a ton of, uh, you know, metabolic amplifiers, drop sets, all these things. But before we do anything, like you said, we've got to look at execution, alignment and exercise selection and those three departments there are realistically our biggest boxes to take first before we do any of that before we do those three things we can't do anything else we can't add more we can't adjust volume we can't adjust the split we can't change the exercise selection because we might if we're not taking those three boxes then we fail from the first step um and there is there is this uh trend that i'm seeing now where people will be adding more workload in so I've only done 10 sets per week for my biceps for the last two years. So I'm going to double it and do 20 now. But if your execution is still poor, the, the, the stimulus is still poor. You could still get away with 10, but you just need to execute those sets better. We need to pick better exercise selection. Um, and that was something that I tried to do with myself at the start. It's, uh, I didn't want to add more until I'd nailed those initial boxes. And that's where that whole thought process of if I can't feel it contracting, if I'm not getting a, a ridiculous amount of connection and, and blood flow into that tissue, I'm not going to do it. So my my exercise pool is quite quite small in terms of the, the, the exercises I'm using, but I've just stuck with them through that whole time. Do you think that's a product? Do you think that this mindset's a product of the popularity of volume accumulation and RIR that's kind of starting to come into our realm? Yeah, I think so, for sure. What's your influence there? What'd you say? It's going to be influenced there for sure. What's your stance when you see people come to you with training in this kind of, this kind of manner? Um, like there, there is a, there's argument for the principles that are being applied behind it, but I just don't think many people are applying it correctly. And I don't think many people that do it have everything we've just resonated with previously. I don't think many people that do it understand the relative importance of those three boxes before they even think about adding more more workload and for me especially with clients like there's only a certain amount we can get away with whilst being able to maintain accuracy being able to maintain intensity within those sets and if we're just adding volume for volume sake because it's ticking a box and it's making a number go up on a sheet there's more to that than than than, than that in training in terms of the actual stimulus that's being applied and i would 100 percent agree there i think it i think it takes an approach of like volume as the main metric of progression rather than the performance within the gym which Technically, is a progressive stimulus, but in my opinion, especially as we get more advanced clientele, that stimulus per set is more important than the total volume that's on the sheet of paper. And what I mean by that is not that the total volume that they're training at is not important. It is, but it's as we advance that RIR window narrows and, and it narrows a lot in my opinion and i think it's not discussed as much that okay we can get a get away with this rir progression volume accumulation setup as we phase into the early beginnings of developing for physique development and competing but as we get into like eight years of training nine years of training ten years of training that rir window is so narrow that if if, if you're not making the most of every set you're you're leaving progress on the table and it's a stimulus that you can't mimic by just adding more volume, 
right? Like, like you said, the performance variables, as you kind of progress the volume up, it's just going to keep dropping and dropping and dropping. And I think that especially as we get into these bigger classes and you have an, a, the amount of tissue that is required to compete in those bigger classes, it just starts to, to fade in its applicability to these, these clientele. Um, and I think that, like you said, people choose it because they think they're addressing their weak body parts because they're training at a higher volume rather than addressing the, the accuracy, the effort, the, the things that actually set up what volume should be right? Because it should be the dose of the medication, not the actual medication supplied, right? Yep. Um, so it's interesting to see. I think uh, it's, it's the perfect point made. And on, on, the, on the contrary, I've had clients in the past, you know, I remember a guy last year who was, I guess what you'd call more of a recreational client in terms of they're more gem pot based, they don't want to compete, they're doing it because they enjoy it. And it's a, it's a passion of theirs. But I know from looking at his training footage and looking at what he applies to his training, the the intensity that is there in sessions is probably 75% on a good day. And if I'm getting him to do a, a small amount of workload and I'm trying to go through with that cone and I'm trying to make this as accurate as possible, I'm going to try and, you know, the, the same principle you've just said then for those bigger guys. It's just not applicable for him as an individual and how his mindset is is tapped in, how he, how he thinks, how he trains, how he likes to train. So the only variable that I have in my command in that realistic regard is pushing him up in workload. And we'd, we basically go through phases where I just, I'd have this kind of progression scheme where we might start with two sets. And by the end of that phase, we finish with four or five and then we wash off fatigue. And then we start the next phase with a little bit more load and we repeat the process and that worked perfectly for him, but it's, it's applicable to him. You know, he's 170 pounds. He doesn't want to compete. He's not assisted. And that was the best model I could use for him. But it's rare that you're going to be able to apply that at that top, top level, especially okay, yeah. with a bodybuilder who's 260, 280 pounds, who, who could do one set of an RDL and completely fry himself for the rest of the session. And if you do two, you're probably frying them for a portion of that week, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think that's the product. I think that's a product of the population specific there where like, I'm the same way. I've had gin pop people where I've used a similar setup. Yeah. And I think that I think that it's very applicable, right? Because we're limiting injury. We are, you know, for people that are probably not as trained, for people that can't take it to the house or even don't want to psychologically. Then yes, yeah. it's a very applicable model to use, um, and it's it's a valuable model to have in your toolbox. But when we discuss top level physique and 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 getting to those upper echelons of the classes, I'm 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 hesitant to say that it's very applicable. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, so one of the things that I think is missed, and, and tell me if you think this is wrong, when it comes to setting up programs is looking at it from a, a movement pattern development standpoint. So what I mean when I kind of make this kind of statement is, you know, there's primary, secondary, tertiary muscle groups when it comes to any pattern, right? So primary is what we're primarily trying to train. Secondary is what's going to be involved. Um, when it comes to like bracing and or secondary involvement and then tertiary is going to be just more functional type stuff, right? Like serratus anterior on pressing, right? Um, is, is missing that, that, that approach in understanding that some of the volume that you're going to be applying for like the best example here is a hip hinge, like doing an RDL or a stiff leg deadlift, right? Primary going to be hamstrings, right? A little glute. 
but we're definitely going to be getting a stimulus for our, our lats and our backs just from a bracing capacity. Right. And I think people miss that boat a lot in that I've had people come to me like, like rack pulling one day for pull because they think that it's like a great back developer. And then two days later, RDLing, I'm like, how in the fuck does your lower back take that? Right. Can we kind of just like touch on that and like what that looks like at a viewpoint of like, we can look at it from actual loading. We can look at it from a movement pattern perspective, however you want to approach it and, and conveying that concept to people. I think the, the example that you gave there, there's going to be a point within someone's training career where they might be able to get away with that for a year when, when they're at that lower level, that lower tier of intensity of muscular development of, of load on the bar of neural demand but you're going to reach a bottleneck at a point where you just don't have the capacity to recover from that stimulus with that proximity. And, you know, if we take a, even if it's a, a hip hinge into a, into a squat, and that could be even like a hack squat, because we're still getting some compressive force there. And this is why, right. In programming, we might, we might now, if we're, if we're doing a deadlift on Tuesday and we want to hack squat on Thursday or Friday, that hack squat, I'm going to try and uh, reverse band, or I'm going to reverse band that safety bar squat to try and, just balance out the profile a little bit and take a little bit of a force away from away from the spine and, and reduce some of that inertia. And that's the micromanagement of, pro, micromanagement of programming when it comes to having that fine eye. I'm not just looking at a safety bar squat being a, a quad exercise. I'm looking at that safety bar squat taxing those other tissues as well. Um, and that's what we essentially need to program around. It's looking at, yes, that movement pattern's in there to primarily target that tissue, but what other tissues and what other factors do we need to take into consideration, which are going to influence sessions around that workout? And I think that that's, that's something that, you know, people will look at programs and be like, you know, why is it like this? Why aren't you using this for a quad? Or why aren't you using this for hamstring? Or why aren't you using this for et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it's like, unless you walk through the logic of like primary, secondary, tertiary for every pattern within the program, you're, you're missing the whole boat of why I put that on paper. Right. And it's, it's an interesting concept because I think this is where we start to get away with training at slightly higher volumes, even with the way that we train. This is where we get away from, you know, injuries over the long term and all these kind of micromanaged aspects that allow someone to train at a higher capacity than they would if it was just, you know, pick one quad exercise, pick one hamstring exercise and run with it, right? Which is you know, I'm, I'm all for building autonomy into someone's sessions when it comes to, you know, choosing some of their, <clears throat> some of their patterns. But I do think that there's an applicability of understanding how these all sequence together across a total training cycle, whether that's seven days, eight days, nine days, whatever that may be for the individual. Um, and I just think it's, I think it's missed the most. Um, do you think that hip hinge one is the one people probably mess up the most when it comes to hip hinging into squatting? Yeah, hip hinging is probably the most common one um and also it, not not as uh not as extensive as that example but also from what i've found is uh like say for your for your delt and arm day do you train delts after your arms or do you train delts before your arms i do one lateral raise before i train arms okay because i was uh i had a uh, in that last phase i had a delt delt and arm day where i do i think it might have been six six sets of medial delts and then I'd train arms and I was finding the the level of fatigue I was getting through that glenohumeral junction and the scapula from the delt training going into the arms after 
I couldn't brace. I couldn't quite stabilize. It just did, like the perfect example is like if you go into like a cross body tricep extension after you've done four sets of laterals and your your delts are so pumped you can't even like you can't even put your arms in place. Um, and I was like, this isn't right. So uh, I, uh, whenever I would do that now, unless unless you were just doing it like one movement, for example, um, I'd put the delts potentially after those those that arm volume because it will have a negative impact on what you're doing for that arm training. It's funny you say that because we kind of progressed to the to the highest point of the delt volume last week, and we do that cross body push down right after, and that's all I felt, man. Was like trying to get into that fucking brace position. I was like, my lateral delts are so fucking pumped right now. I can't even do this damn push down. Um, yeah, and so I think that's a, an interesting one as well, as far as especially when it comes to like uh, stability of the glenohumeral joint. Like I I can't stand it when i see people doing what they think is opposing patterns so like chest and lat patterns and it's like oh dude you're just missing the whole function of a lat here like it, it just aggravates the pool out of me and i get it like if you're trying to get frequency up there's probably better ways to structure lat frequency at like three times a week right um but it, stability of the glenohumeral humor joint is probably the the next one that we look at as far as like the most commonly messed up as far as like programming within that but it's funny you bring that up because i ran into the same issue last week um so overall man we've kind of like really hit a lot of the a lot of the issues and a lot of the problems when it comes to specialized programming what just in general like when it comes to to setting people up for progressing over the long term what are the big tenets that you think we need to kind of take away here for for someone looking to progress into the bigger class or someone looking to progress just their physique in the class that they're in I think uh, we, we've mentioned this on a previous podcast, but with, with new clients or even with advanced clients that say they're advanced in those console stages, it's very rare that when you look at the application of their training and how they train, even a lot of those more advanced clients aren't that advanced in regards to their execution, in regards to what they bring into sets. Um, so going through those foundational stages of programming, those first few phases, it could be, could be a matter of four weeks, it could be a matter of four months where... We're spending time just nailing and ingraining movement patterns. We're spending time manipulating tempo for them to, you know, force them to essentially be more accurate by slowing down those reps or potentially using, you know, pauses in the length and range or pauses in the short. And we're building that neurological capacity. And then from there, unless there is, unless it, it, it is with more of a, an elite, elite athlete or advanced client where there is a, there's an obvious there's an obvious issue with that physique that needs to be addressed in terms of development. Just go through those foundational stages, balancing volume quite equally. And then when you feel as though you get to a point where no, like I, I was in this boat with my arms, I was dismissing it for so long. It's like, I'm not going to have an arm day. I'm not, I'm not, I don't, I'm not in a position where I need an arm day. Yet. I'm not, I'm not. And then probably a year later, I'm like looking at my photos. I'm like, no, I still haven't made any progress there. So I'm going to have to add it in. Um, and I was in denial of needing it in the first place, but that I think everyone's going to go through that where it's like, Oh, you know, arm, arm days aren't uh, arm days aren't taxing enough. They don't deserve a day on their own. But it goes it goes it goes for every body part. Like if there is an issue that needs to be addressed from a competitive standpoint, and that's gonna that's gonna you know be your weakness, be your Achilles heel on stage, especially something like your arms that are featured in so many poses, especially for a, for a taller guy, it needs to be addressed, and programming needs to reflect that. But earn the right to actually. 
be in that position in the first place instead of being 140 pounds and saying right i need an arm day in my day i need a need a specialized arm program when you're 140 pounds and you've only trained for a year you know spend time with the with the kind of bread and butter meat meat and potatoes stuff for as long as possible before having that fine uh fine-tuned comb and one final point i kind of wanted to bring up just for some of our bigger guys on here um as you progress into these more aggressive push-up phases yeah one of the biggest things that i think can be very valuable to these individuals is the the thought process of of like the compressive forces on actual loading and programming that where it's spaced out as much as possible <clears throat> because what's the first thing we hear from like these 250 260 270 pound bodybuilders when they start pushing up pretty pretty far into an off season right lower back pumps you know probably dysfunctionality within gait cycle patterns and stuff like that. So taking care of your, your pre-session preparation type stuff and looking at programming in order to minimize compressive force as much as you can within needing to get the patterns done. Because being up that high, and you know this even more so than me, takes a toll on your, on your body, right? Like, and it's going to be something that can affect your training if you're not careful, especially as we discussed with Joe, like on the drug selection side, like if you're not careful with that, like that's going to be even more effective than, or more, more of an effect than possibly pushing the body way up. Um, taking care of your body as far as like that preparation and that structuring of sequencing when it comes to sessions becomes even more highlighted if it is out of whack for, for what you need. Yeah. hundred percent. Like when, when we got to a point at the peak end of that, last phase i think the highest i got up to is 306 306 upon wake and i remember like every day i'd take the dog down to the park like literally five minutes down the road and by the time i got to the park i had to hold onto the fence because my lower back was so pumped and it's literally a five minute walk <laughs> um uh, yeah like uh like a little a little hill and i'd have to like breathe and i like, like pump myself up to actually walk up the hill um you you got to appreciate the fact that it, it it does get to a point where if these things are mismanaged and I've learned this the hard way it cripples your training and that doesn't even go for you actually axial loading that goes for anything because it's so uncomfortable um you know the, the that point within that push because my energy requirements were high as well that the volume that we were using within the workouts was super super low um and the example like we were in lockdown then so i was training in my garage and i remember like a hip hinge to squat ratio would have been three days apart and i had one one top set only on a reverse band safety bar squat and the reverse band had to be there i was like i literally couldn't do the squat and then one set of rdls three days later and that was as much as i could get away with but it was enough for me to progress consistently and still recover um but it just shows the intricacy of what needs to be applied there because it's all going well saying it in terms of like when you haven't been there, but once you're there, you start to realize the ability that that has to completely crush everything you're doing. Yeah. And I mean, even like outside of that, like pressing patterns, like trying to set up a pressing pattern and everything. It's like, even sometimes like I've seen people have issues with like chest supported rows, like trying to maintain a thoracic extended spine. Like, dude, I'm just blasted. Like it's, it will start to affect everything you do. So it's important to manage it. Like you said, like one set for you is probably the same stimulus for a lot of people in within two sets, right? So just something yeah. to consider. Yeah. For sure. Well, Callum, this has been a, a fantastic conversation as always. Um, if you kind of want to let the listeners know where to find you, what you got going on as far as like what's coming up 
um, and then we'll, we'll kind of log off here. So if you just uh, hop onto Google and, and Google search the Muscle Mentors, um, you'll be able to find our website and our, uh, our education portal. We've got a, an online resource for, for coaches and, and personal trainers to, to learn and develop, and we essentially take you through a, a mentoring uh, process on there. And then on social media, if you just search the Muscle Mentors, it will come up with uh, all six of us. Um, and it's just our first name and then, and then the Muscle Mentors. So, um, yeah, man, thanks for, uh, thanks for having me on. Of course, man. And one question, because I forgot to ask. You've broken your living room floor, hip hinging in your in your house I'm, yet? I'm literally about to train legs in about 10 minutes. So. <laughs> Let's not put a hole in our floor. Some, uh, Instagram stories, yeah. <laughs> All right, man. I appreciate it. Thank you for coming on. Yeah, my pleasure, man.